Lord, thank you for this time. We worship you. We praise you. You are the Lord of heaven and earth. Now prepare our hearts as we worship you through the word. And all God's people said, Amen. It just didn't make it through the last one? It didn't work. Okay. Oh, well. Good. It worked out well because we do have a little bit of a longer sermon this morning because I wanted to touch on a subject that is of importance to everybody. Specifically, we're going to talk about um, the what's called the judgment seat of Christ or the believer's work of judgments. In other words, where we are in our, our whole timeline, if you want to call it that, is Jesus has returned and he's defeated all his enemies and there's going to be a judgment. Okay? And believers don't suffer condemnation. Okay? But you are judged for your works. And I want you to know how you're going to be judged, okay? So, we're going to start with what I call various judgments, okay? Because it can get confusing. And I put these up here, so you, I'm not going to go to the verses. I'll read the verses, but there's what I call, what we've learned as well, the judgment of faith. Now, what is the judgment of faith? Well, if you die before he returns, you go to one of two places. Either you go to what is called the intermediate heaven, your spirit does, to be in fellowship with, with the Lord, or you're separated from him in, in hell. Uh, there are a number of verses, probably the most popular one that d- talks about this is John 3.16. God so of the world that he what? He was only son, and what must you do? Believe in him, that's faith, so that you will not perish, that's hell, but have eternal life, that is heaven. There are those, Paul wrote also in Romans 2, that those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. That's for one group. But for those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, what's left? Wrath and indignation. Okay? The key factor here is do you have faith? Did you place your faith in Jesus for the promise of eternal life? Or have you placed your faith in self for the promise of eternal life? There's the great white throne judgment. Now, does anybody want to guess where that is mentioned? You should know this. Revelation. But it's actually mentioned, first of all, where? In the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 7. It says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands and thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court set, and the books were open. And there we have the first mention of books. Of course, in Revelation, chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, again, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their... This was last week's sermon. What are you judged by? Your deeds. Thank you. Who said that? Good. Your deeds. It's what you did with your time here on earth. It goes on to talk about in this passage, the sea gives up the dead. Hades gives up the dead. Everybody is judged according to their deeds. Okay? And based upon your deeds, you're thrown into the lake of fire if, if you fail the tests. That's the second death, the lake of fire. If your name is not found written in that specially, uniquely identified book, the book of life, you're thrown into the lake of fire. But at this judgment, there is God, and books are opened. And you're judged according to what is written in these books, which is your deeds. Let's take a moment here to understand the implications of this. 
what you do matters because it's being recorded. It's being recorded. A special book, the book of life, is opened. And if your name isn't found written in this book, you're thrown to the lake of fire. Now, some believe that this great white throne judgment is only reserved for unbelievers. Okay? There's some that don't agree with that. Now, there's the judgment of the sheep and goats. Now, we went through that last week. I don't need to go through that, but that's in Matthew 25. He separates the sheep from those on, on his right to the goats on the left. And this is a judgment that determines if you enter the kingdom. Now, some believe that this is the same judgment as the great white throne judgment. Okay, they're all happening at the same time. What we are interested in that, that is reserved only for believers is what's called the judgment seat of Christ. I'm going to read some verses here to you. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. Again, there it is. It's what you do. That's how you're being judged. According to what he has done, whether good or bad. Romans 14.10-12, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself or herself to God. Let me take a moment here real briefly. Just so you know, the word judgment seat is one word in the Greek, and it means bima, B-E-M-A. And it simply means step. Okay? If you didn't know that. So the word judgment seat is a bit misleading because it conveys the idea of a tribunal or of a court. But the word step tells us it refers to ascending, primarily to receive, in this case, a reward. Now, in the Olympic Stadium that was outside Corinth, where Paul wrote this verse, athletes would ascend the steps to receive their reward. In that time, it was a garland or a wreath or an oak leaf cluster. We would say that in the Olympics, what do you receive? A medal, right? You, there's, there's varying steps you go up to to receive a medal, yeah. Every believer will be at the judgment seat to receive their reward for their deeds. Some will receive more rewards than others. Everybody will hear praise from God. Some will hear more praise than others. Whether you receive more rewards in praise than others is not the issue. The real issue is everyone at this judgment is saved. That's the most important thing. You definitely want to be at this judgment. Okay? There's what I call the judgment of motives. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, says this, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. Hebrews 4, 12-13, I've preached on this before. It says, For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. It judges, the Word of God, what? The thoughts and attitudes of the heart. There's your motive right there. Now, it says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare. Well, when? Before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So at the end, the Word of God will judge you like a sword. Okay? So these verses tell us that the Word of God is used to judge not only our deeds, but the motives behind our deeds, okay? And it's particularly graphic, Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. The idea is, does anybody want to have their, their motives, their attitudes exposed? No, we do not. And so remember the idea I, I taught on this before, is like, take a knife, put yourself behind, someone behind you, and they put the knife to your throat. Okay, you can't move your head or anything, and you're forced to look up. But what they did back in that time for someone who was a criminal, they would tie a, a, a knife around their neck and it would be like this. And so they couldn't look down. They were forced to look at their accuser. Okay? And so God's going to open up, open you up. Not physically, but open up your spirit. Look inside you, in your heart. 
and, and your motives, the attitudes, the thoughts are exposed and they're judged by the word of God. Okay? Now this morning, I want us to look deeper into how our deeds will be judged because it's very important for us to labor wisely in the use of the gifts that God has given us. We're going to spend the rest of our time talking about the believer's judgments of works. I want you to go here. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 3. This is where you'll spend your time the rest of our morning here. But it's the believer's judgment of works. While you're turning there, let me give you some background uh, what was going on in the Corinthian church. Um, the Corinthian church was filled with immature or worldly believers. And whenever you have a church that has people like that, more than a handful, inevitably it seems like, they stir up division. In this case, they were judging who was greater. Paul, who spent 18 months planting and founding the church, or Apollos, who had pastored the church for just over, we think, about four to four and a half years. Now, Apollos is described as someone who was a very great teacher, eloquent teacher. And so the comparison was between Paul, who founded the church, and Apollos, who was greater. So probably the church grew under Apollos, so there were some that sided with Apollos, and there were those that were more faithful and loyal to Paul. And as people were taking sides, Paul writes this letter to quell this problem, because this would be a huge problem in the church. Verse 5, what then is Apollos? What, and, and, and what is Paul? The answer is they're simply servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. So the opportunity was given to Paulus and to Paul. I planted, Apollos watered, but again, who caused the growth? God caused the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. In other words, John, Pastor John, what, found this church? He planted it? I'm simply watering. We're simply servants. It's not about us. It's about the Lord. Amen? Okay. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Again, Paul and Paul were merely servants who were given the opportunity by God to pastor this church. But they aren't anything. I am nothing. Okay? I am simply a faithful servant. That's it. It's the Lord who causes the growth. And the focus is always to be on God. When you understand that, then you won't be doing what the people were doing, which is judging between Paul and Apollos. Okay? Now, why? Look at verse 8. Because he who plants and he who waters are one. Paul and Apollos weren't divided. They were united in what they were doing, which was what? Using their gifts to build the church. But each, watch this, will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, field, God's building. Because God will judge and reward each man for his labor. That's why. God is the one who's judged. Therefore, stop making the judgments. The judgment is up to who? Up to God, Exactly. Each man is not judged and rewarded for his success, by the way. Whether it is a small or a large church, each servant will be judged by the same standard. And it's their labor. Okay? He'd be rewarded according to his own labor. But then Paul does something that is interesting, is he introduces the analogy of a building. Verse 9. You are God's building. Now, verse 10, let me read verses 10 and 11. According to the grace of God which is given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, just a few 
few things here. The grace that Paul's referring to there in verse 10, it's not salvation grace. We're saved by grace, meaning that we don't deserve to be saved. It's a, it's a gift from God. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about what I call gifts or abilities or talents grace. In other words, by the grace of God, you've been given abilities or gifts. Okay? He expects you to use them. All right? Sort of the gifts, the grace of God, the gifts that God has given me, he says, I'm like a master builder, and I laid a foundation. Everything that we have has been given to us from God. Now, Paul refers to himself as a wise master builder who laid a foundation, but another is building on it. Now, what is Paul saying here is, I'm a church planner, and I'm not a long-term pastor. That's what he did. He went around and he planted churches. Why did he do that? That was God's calling for him. He uniquely equipped him to do that. He said, I laid the foundation, and I did it only because God was gracious enough to commit that ministry to me. And now another, i.e. Apollos, is expanding upon my work. Because Paul knew his spiritual gift mix and wisely labored using those gifts. Thus, he's the wise master builder. Now, from a construction perspective, Paul was a foundation layer. You may not remember this, but uh, in the summer of 1980 and 1989, I worked construction in between going to college. And you know, I didn't know anything about it building a house or anything, but I learned a ton. And I learned how a house was built, and it uses many different kinds of contractors. And it began, you know what the first thing is that you do before you, when you build a house? You gotta get the ground prepared for it, okay? And so you clear the trees, and you grade it all out, and then they dig what? The foundation, exactly. So you prepare the land through grading, dig a foundation, and then next is you have foundation layers. Usually they're masons, they're concrete workers. They laid the foundation, and they pour the headers and the footers and all of that. Um, they were then followed by, if I remember correctly, the general carpenters, and they just start begin laying the floor and, and just do the general framing of the building. And then, however it goes, I'm not sure of the exact sequence, but eventually, pretty soon, you have to at least get a roof up. Because if it's, especially in Washington, if it rains a lot, it, it can damage stuff and so on. So they have roofers, and usually they were followed in with the bare walls with electricians and plumbers so they can get all the, drill all the holes and get that stuff laid instead of, there's no drywall up yet or anything of that. Okay? And all this is being inspected as we go through all these processes. But the point is that each contractor had a specific skill set that was used to build a house. If an electrician tried to lay a foundation, that foundation would be what? It would be unstable, yeah. If a roofer installed the electrical wiring, the building would be at great risk of an electrical fire. Some of you have homes that you think, I think that's who did my wiring in my home, right? Now, Paul knew he was not a plumber or an electrician, or even towards the very end, a finisher. Was like the, one of the last things they put in is the carpet and the painting. Okay, and they put on the, the handles, the finishers, and so on. He wasn't any of that. And for Paul to do so would be an unwise use of his spiritual gifts. And so Paul, in humility, recognizes that he only laid a foundation on the foundation laid before his, and namely, Jesus Christ. In other words... He laid his foundation upon the foundation laid by Jesus Christ. Now, what is the foundation of Jesus Christ? And this is what you need to know. It simply is Jesus' teaching, his doctrine. In other words, it's the word of God. See, a wise builder only builds on the foundation of Jesus Christ, on sound doctrine. Now, I want to share a story that you may or may not be familiar with, and there's a many of these, but this was um, of a pretty big magnitude about 10 years ago in the, in the body of Christ, and it's far too common uh, among builders of the church. 
After graduating from a conservative evangelical college, that was Wheaton College, and earning a Master's of Divinity degree from Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California, another conservative evangelical um, seminary, Rob Bell founded Mars Hill Bible Church in Granville, Michigan in 1999. He pastored it until 2012, and under his leadership, Mars Hill was one of the fastest-growing churches in America. It numbered between eight to 10,000 people. In 2011, he wrote the book, Love Wins. Are you with that book, anybody? Love Wins, in which he questioned the existence of hell and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation. He went on to eventually, later on, to embrace gay marriage. Now, what happened to Rob Bell? Growing up in a conservative growing up in, on the foundation of Jesus Christ. What happened to him? Well, where did he go wrong? Guess what? He began to build upon a foundation other than the foundation of Jesus Christ. He strayed from sound doctrine. The point here is the foundations of Christianity are already laid. Christianity doesn't need new foundations. It needs wise builders who build on that foundation. Let's look at verse 12. Now, if any man builds on the foundations with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. On, go back to verse 10. It, it references the phrase, each man. You see that? Verse 12 references any man. What does this mean? Well, Paul isn't restricting this passage only to pastors or teachers or prophets or evangelists or apostles. Though all of us are not all the same degree of building on that foundation, we are all building on it because every one of us has a ministry. Did you know that? You are a priest of God, as I am. I happen to be called out to do this full time. You still have a ministry, okay? And you have to decide which foundation you're going to build on. Build on the right foundation. Be careful how you you build. Now, how do we build? Even though there's only one foundation, there are many materials with which you could build. And he lists six. Do you see them there? Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, in stubble or straw. Every Christian, and I want you to hear me in this, every Christian is given an unlimited amount of resources. Okay? But what do I mean by that? I haven't been given any more than you have. You all have this, we all have the same Holy Spirit. Okay? Through us, the Holy Spirit is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything we could ever ask or imagine according to the power of the Holy Spirit that is at work within us. So you can do anything you want. You can build anything you want, but you want to build a lasting building. If you want to do that, you would start with precious stones. Okay, because the word precious stones, we think of precious stones as diamonds or rubies, right? That is not what the word here means. It means it refers to marble or granite. Okay, so that would be a good solid foundation to build on, right? And then you would overlay that marble or granite with gold or silver or both. And that would be a beautiful, lasting building. But you know what? There are some Christians that don't do that. They build it out of a foundation, out of, on a foundation, but they build it on, out of wood. They have wood walls and wood frames around the doors and windows. Then they mix hay with mud to make bricks. The roof of the building is made with with straw or stubble. And so you have this guy with the same Holy Spirit, same resources and ability, and he says, here, God, how do you like it? There's another Christian who's used gold, silver, and granite over here, and he says, here, God, how do you like this? But to the one who built with wood, hay, and stubble, you know what God's going to say? It's, it's, it's not evil. It's not bad. 
it's just worthless. Because it isn't fitting to put mud, a mud hut, on the foundation of Christ. To the one who built with gold, silver, and granite, God will say, well done. Because it's fitting to put a granite building overlaid with gold and silver on the foundation of Christ. Let me bring it down to us. Spiritually speaking, gold would be the very finest service a Christian could render. The most godlike, self-sacrificing, dedicated commitment in terms of motive and deed. Silver would be next to that. Then precious stones and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are some people who go through their busy lives, and that's a key phrase, they're busy, and they build with wood, hay, and stubble. They go to church and say, I'm building with precious stones today. They sit there and they listen to the sermon if they can stay awake, and then leave and do nothing else. And you know what that is? Well, it's good to come to church, right? It's not evil. It's good to come to church, but if all you do is come and you walk away, that's it? That's not gold. That is not silver. That is not precious stones. That is not wood. Okay? In fact, I would say it's stubble. But if you come to church and you minister, you use your gifts, or if you took what you learned from church and passed it on to somebody else, what's that? That's gold or silver or precious stones. See, I think that this passage here we're looking at, it's an admission that all Christians and churches won't end up being the same. There'll be gold Christians all the way down to stubble Christians. There'll be gold churches all the way down to stubble churches. I think it also shows us that the Spirit of God knew that there would be varying kinds of Christians, varying kinds of churches, and I might add, varying kinds of denominations. While you are building on the foundation of Christ, I want you to keep these things in mind right here. And I would write these things down if I were you because this is what you're going to be judged on. Motive. In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, it says this. Again, therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will, bring, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. When I do something, or when you do something solely for the glory of God, that's a motive worth gold. But if I serve in a way that looks like gold, but my motive was wrong, it's stubble, guess what? That's disqualified, that service. So first of all, the judgment of Christians is going to include their motives. It's the why, it's the heart behind why you do what you do. Secondly, you're going to be judged on your conduct. In other words, that's your deeds. That's what you do. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The day-to-day conduct of our lives matters. It's either wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, or precious stone. And what do we know is happening with what we do? It's being recorded, written down. And finally, there is service. And by service, I mean it's the, the use of your spiritual gifts. Do you remember this in Matthew 25, 14 to 20, the parable of the talents? Kingdom of heaven is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And he gives what? One, five talents? One, two, and then one, one. Okay? So the one who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. 
But after a long time, the master of the house of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. This is what this judgment's about. The master's returned. We need to give an account. In other words, simply use the abilities, the spiritual gifts, the resources God has entrusted to you to build his kingdom upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Now, after building a house or any building, do you know what happens next? There's an inspection. When we were, uh, bought our, our home, it's the first time ever in our life have, have bought a new home, and we told a brand new process. And, you know, we would, I would drive by and check on the, the status of the home, and then when it, the day came for us to go into with the, the finisher, and it was uh, four hours that we went through our home in our bare socks, because everything was brand new, and he'd already been there about an hour or so and marked some things, and we were given his blue tape. And we walked around and we saw things that were imperfections, things that needed to be fixed, okay? Whether this light bulb was out or uh, this, there was a curve or a, you know, the foundation, there's probably the foundation if it was you know, cracking a lot, the things that needed to do, okay? And, you know, it just, I'm glad my wife was there because she's a far more critical eye at this and she can see things that I simply don't see, all right? Um, or this, this carpet wasn't tacked down properly here. This piece of molding is, is, is loose. So you're, you're marking all these things and you're writing everything down and you're looking for fault, okay? Because then when you have this, they're required by our, our contract with them to fix it before we have to sign off on it that they're done and then it's, there's no more liability for them. Okay, so it was this long process. They said that there are people that brought in ladders to go look up at the top windows and and we're looking for any sort of fault at all. But that's a final inspection. And he said about our home, by the way, because it was, remember 2017? Remember it rained all day, every day that winter? And they were trying to close out all of these homes uh, by the uh, March 1st, which is when we, we bought our home. So they were rushing some stuff. And he said to us, there's a lot of mistakes in this home. We would consider this a bad build per our standards. But nonetheless, there was a final inspection. So let's talk about what I call the building inspection. Verse 13. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show up because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. There's coming a day when everybody's work is going to be tested. And I want you to think of it this way. We're all going to take our buildings to Jesus. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to set them on fire. <laughs> and he's going to see what's left. Exactly. Wood, hay, and stubble, what happens to those things? They're going to burn up. Okay? Burn up in flames. Granite and silver and gold do not burn. Well, then why burn with fire? It's so God can determine what's left. And with what's left, he's going to do what? Punish you. No. He's going to reward you. I'm going to see if you guys are paying attention. Because some of think that way, right? Revelation 22, 12. Behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. You gotta, by the way, you can have great motives. If you don't do anything, what does it profit you? Absolutely nothing. Now, what kind of reward is he bringing? Well, your inheritance is what? I mentioned this last week. The kingdom. I've prepared a kingdom for your inheritance. Remember that? But your reward is something different. It's crowns, and the Bible talks about crowns. And this is just I, the best I could do, a list of, I think most, of, if not all, the crowns that are listed in the Bible. I probably missed some, but there's the everlasting crown. That's a crown that is for obedient and self-sacrificing, the people that train themselves in spiritual disciplines to walk intimately with the Lord. First Corinthians 9.25, 
Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever, the everlasting crown. There's a crown of righteousness that is rewarded for faithfulness. 2 Timothy 4.8, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul had, had run the race. He was nearing the end. He'd been faithful. There's a crown of life. That is for those who love him sacrificially. James 1.12, blessed is a man who what? Perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You love him and you endure, and you love him sacrificially, and you endure. You're, you're sacrificing, you get the crown of life. There's a crown of glory that is probably reserved for faithful pastors. Talk about shepherding the, the flock of God. It says, when the chief shepherd appears, you receive the unfading crown of glory. Okay? 1 Peter 5, 4 and 5. And then, of course, there's a crown of rejoicing. That's for those who win souls. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So we are rewarded with crowns. And so I say to you, Take heed how you build. You want a lot of crowns. But it's also not just crowns that you're rewarded with. You are also going to receive praise. Remember the last half of 1 Corinthians 4, 5? And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So every man will receive praise. Now you may only have a little piece of precious stone and a little hunk of gold left in your pile when the fire's done. But for whatever is left, that is your reward. But every man will receive praise from God. Because the key thing is, is that, yeah, you suffered loss, but not the loss of salvation. Now, what kind of builder are you? Well, Paul tells us there are three kinds of builders. Verse 14, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. So the first builder is a worthy builder, okay? And this is the type of builder that you want to be. So you basically, you knew the sound doctrine laid down by Jesus, and you wisely built off of that foundation. You teach the same historically conservative sound doctrine passed down from the apostles and you do it with the right motives, with the proper conduct, and with effective service. And this type of work survives the fire. It remains, okay? It abides. And this builder is rewarded. So God is saying here, I'm going to reward what remains. And so you don't want to labor in vain. It's mentioned a different way. If you don't have love and you even offer the, the supreme sacrifice, your own body, you give it up in flames, but you have not love, what does it profit you? Nothing. Why? The deed was there, but what wasn't there? Love, which is the motive. Verse 15. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. That's the second builder, and they're the worthless builders. Now, why are they called, what I call them, why are they called worthless builders? Well, if you go to 2 Corinthians 5.10, again, I'll just read this to you. It says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. According to what he has done, here it is, whether good or bad. And the word bad there, I wish they would have not translated it that way. It's a terrible translation. The Greek word actually means worthless. According to what he has done, whether good or worthless. You're going to be judged on what is good and what is worthless. 
the worthless builder built on the foundation of Christ, but with what? Wrong motives, right? Wrong conduct, wrong service. The fire will test their building, and it will burn up, and they're going to suffer loss. And I can imagine this builder saying, all my life I was doing that work, and it was all stubble? Be careful how you build. (laughs) Don't waste your time on wood, hay, and stubble. Because the Bible is filled with warnings of potential suffering of loss of rewards or crowns. Did you know that? 2 John 8, he writes this, Watch yourselves that you do not lose what you have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Revelation 3.11, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. It can be taken from you. Persevere in doing what is good. Build on that foundation with the right motive, the right conduct, the right service. Make sure you're doing not the good thing, but what? The best thing. Find out your spiritual gift. Persevere in using it. Okay? That's one of the things that is so frustrating when sometimes when pastors have been reviewed before by you know, different church boards, and they want to see me work on my um, mercy or my compassion or my hospital visitations. I'm awful at that, right? I wasn't designed to do that. You know why they do that? Because these, these church leaders and, and elders don't know how to review pastors, Okay? I'm telling you, and what the Bible is telling you is that you have a gift, and the most effective way that I can build the body of Christ is not for me to go visit people in the hospital. I get in there, I'm to be completely honest with you, in a half hour, I am almost asleep. It just drains the very life of me. I'm just not wired that way. Okay? I say I walk out of a hospital sometime and think, Lord, give me some sort of conflict that I have to deal with, something where I can lead to give me back energy. Because it's just not, I'm just not wired that way. And there are other pastors that are just excel at that. And they're, they're naturally good at that. And that's where they should be. See, the church in, 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 in Crossview, in, in Indiana, had that kind of pastor there. He couldn't lead, and he, he was a very good teacher. But he was a great friend and hospitality. And, but the church needed to go forward, and he needed someone different to take him to the next step. Find out what your gift is, and use that gift. Does it mean that I should never visit anyone in the hospital? Of course. I have to do that. And I do that. Am I gifted for that? No. But I still do it. I don't major in it, though. Even though all the wood and the hay and stubble is burned up, and you suffer the loss of rewards, you do not suffer the loss of salvation. That's the key. Look at uh, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So what kind of builder are you? You're one of these three W's here. You're a worthy builder. You're a worthless one, or this last one, you're a wrecker. This last person, they don't build. They're a wrecker. They destroy, they tear down. It is so much easier to, to tear down than it is to build. Now, this is probably a reference to an unbeliever or unbelievers, the wrecker. And it can be outside the church or inside the church, but they destroy what it is that God is endeavoring to build. And God is jealous of his own, and he will destroy anyone who destroys his church. Now, somebody who comes along and tries to undo what God has done, somebody who comes along and then tries to hinder the work of the church, somebody who comes along and tries to remove the foundation of Christ, he sets himself up in a position to be destroyed by God. Now, do you remember what happened to me at the church in, in Indiana? 
that older group that had controlled, not my words, but the words of the, the church board, the destiny of that church for 30 years. And they didn't want the church to go forward at all. They'd raised a million dollars and wanted to get to this new location. And they took all these personality tests and so on and came up with this job description that fit me. And God brought me to them and we began to push things forward. And there was immediate kickback from this group. And he did a couple of things to take me out. First of all, there was a lie about me and whole telling dirty sexual jokes to the kids I was coaching in Little League. It was proven to be completely wrong, but one of those older group sent a letter to the church, slandered me all across the little small town, and sent a letter to the church, and of course it was completely proven to be wrong and false. They tried to vote me out, okay? Going to different people in church, there was a guy that was a... um, a builder, and he put in a quote to help build the church. His quote was so high compared to other numbers, there's no way we could use them. We wanted to, but we couldn't. So they thought, well, they have something against the church and against me. So they went to him and said, you have something against the pastor. Would you sign his petition to get him removed? Doing all this behind our back and everything. Okay? When we would take votes on when to move forward with different things, there was 12 to 15 people that consistently voted no. We knew who they were, this older generation. Okay? But the point being is that the, this, this area of, of, of Indiana, they were, it was just filled with passive-aggressive men. And it couldn't lead. I had to bring the denomination, and we had to confront these people. And it was the president of the denomination that had to confront them in a public meeting. And then when it still continued after that, what happened to those people? Well, only us, only the church leadership, particularly myself and the youth pastor, dealt with the final person who really was the key. But the other people, the lady that slandered me, wrote that letter and everything and spread that gossip, you know what happened to her? God burned her house down. Now, this was all talked about by within the church because what happened to another group, that, another person that was in that, in the, pushing this whole narrative and trying to get rid of me. He had for years suffered from mental illness, had conquered it. God struck him with that mental illness again. He admitted to us in the church leadership, God struck me for this because of what I tried to do to you, Pastor Chris. And he was a shell of what he was before. Another couple, God just flat out removed, sent him away within our church. The last person who was the ringleader of it all, the president of the denomination, Myself and the youth pastor and two people from the church, we had this meeting, and you got to confront her and threaten her. If she does this again, she'll be excommunicated. Here's the sad thing about this lady. She's a PK, a pastor's kid. And they said, well, who's going to say this to her and confront her? And he, the president of the domination looked around and said, well, you have to do it. He can't do it. The pastor can't. You got to do it. So we got to that meeting. <laughs> Those two church board members sat like right next to each other, like frightened mice, and couldn't do anything. So the youth pastor and myself were more than willing to sit there and hold her feet to the fire. And she cried twice. She asked us to leave, but we were very clear: you do this again, you're gone. From that point on, within a year after that, the entire church staff was gone, for the most. part. I was gone six months after that anyways. But the point being is that before I came here, I met with the president of the denomination. He said to me, you know, Chris, all the things you did at that church, the one thing that we didn't realize that we now realize is that you were there to bring down that group that had controlled the destiny of that church. They are, are powerless now. And so this church can finally move forward. They, destroy, they tried to destroy the church. And what did God do to them? And it was recognized within the church leadership that this is what God had done to them because of what they had tried to do to destroy his church. Okay? So there are, it's, 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 it's sad, but it's true. There are worthy builders. Be that. Don't be the worthless builder. And definitely don't be the wrecker. So what kind of builder are you? Are you a worthy builder? A worthless builder or a wrecker? Now, 
I'm going to close with this. Why why does receiving rewards, the praise, why does that matter? Well, in Revelation, John saw this. This is Revelation 4, verses 4 and verses 9 through 10. It says, around the thrones, he has his vision. This is what John sees. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. So the crowns of the 24 elders are wearing what is called a victor's crown, which means it's probably the elders refer to the church, who victoriously has endured the great tribulation. And in the worship of their creator, verses 9 and 10 tell us, and when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, that's Jesus, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, that's the church, will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. So we're going to do forever and ever in heaven, on earth, worship him, and will cast their crowns before the throne. And if I'm right, we'll be casting our crowns at his feet before his throne in worship. How many crowns will you be able to cast before the throne? And that is determined by how wisely you build. Are you a worthy builder? Are you a worthless builder? Or are you a wrecker? And so, clearly, (laughs) build wisely. That's how you'll be judged. Amen? Well, I had four songs, because this was by the number, going to be the longer sermon. Usually I do eight pages, it's ten pages. But we don't even have a closing song, but we're done. Why don't you stand with me? I'm going to pray, I'm going to bless the food, and then you can go get something to eat. If you're visiting or you forgot to bring something, still there's plenty of food. You can come out there. I do want to mark you with a big A in your chest, you know, like they do in that one book because you didn't bring something so we can see and make you feel bad about yourself. No, we have plenty of food. Please join us, all right? So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Bless this food, we pray, to the nourishment of our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen.